Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this amazing morning, God, where we um, live and breathe and know that you keep, uh, you hold everything together. God, where we uh, know the reality that you are with the Father and you are advocating uh, for us. We thank you, God, that on this day, your mercies are new every day like, like every other day, uh, that you reign and rule, that you are good and loving, that you are just and you are holy. And God, I'm a, uh, I'm a beggar uh, in need of your grace this morning. God, I pray that you would uh, help me um, be empowered by your spirit to stand firmly on your word, to bring no offense. God, I pray that the only offense that would come at all would be from your word, not from me or my words or my personality. And I just pray, God, that uh, those who belong to you would be encouraged and edified, convicted this morning. Those who have not yet uh, come to you, God, I pray that uh, you'd be drawing them this morning. So, God, please have your way with each of us here. You've, uh, before eternity passed, that you... Uh, uh, planned this day and for us to be here sitting under the teaching of this word um, in this building. So God, please uh, be honored and glorified, and I pray that we'd be edified. And God's people said, amen. Good morning. Kids, good morning. Glad you're with us this morning. Once or uh, four times a year. Grateful. I know your parents are grateful as well. want to ask a question. Um, have you ever been in love? Have you ever loved something or somebody? I think we all have. It's, uh, people, parents, spouses, children, dogs. What does it mean to be in love? Is it simply a physical attraction? Is loving somebody um, based on somebody meeting your needs? Does it have to be somebody you enjoy being with or have common interests with? I'm in love. I've been uh, married to a gal for 39 years. If you um, observe our marriage, just by the fact that we wear our rings and we've been married for 39 years, which is God's grace in itself, um, you go, okay, they must be in love. But when you look at my actions over the years, you go, wow, that doesn't really characterize love. And I was thinking about this the other day because my wife actually brought it to my attention and I'll have to ask for forgiveness because I forgot to ask for permission. Is that um, I love the yard. We've got a beautiful yard. And my wife loves the yard, but we love the yard in different ways. I love the yard from my backside with a iced tea watching the sprinklers go off or watching my wife work. My wife enjoys the yard because she really, she genuinely enjoys working in the yard. It's not just that I'm lazy. That's part of it. But the other part of it is, is that she really enjoys working in the yard. But this summer, I've got a to-do list in the yard that I, that I created. It was my own to-do list. And she had a to-do list for me in the yard that had one thing on it, just one. And we've got, we've got rocks on our perimeter, and, and there's bushes in those rocks, and, and in those rocks is a buried um, drip line that became unburied, and it really bugs her. And she asked me if I'd bury it. And I said, yes. That was two months ago. And the sprinkler drip line is still on top of the rocks. And so as I was thinking about love, 
and how um, love is really doing um, what the other person um, um, expects of you in some levels. Um, you've heard of the five love languages. There's holes in that. But like my wife is an acts of service lady. I'm a, I'm a, um, I'm a quality time. Can we just have quality time on the patio watching the weeds grow and watching the sprinkler line on top of the rocks? But she is acts of service. And, um, and for me to um, love her the way that she is designed by God to be loved, I need to be a good student of who she is. And rather being, rather seeking to be understood, which is what I often do, I need to seek more to understand her so that I can love her in the beautiful way that God's designed her to be loved. So I've got a couple of questions that come off of this as it pertains to our relationship with the Lord. How do you know if you know God? You know, Jeff, Jeff was the MC this morning. He gave the announcements like, like we do every week. He said that our mission is to what? Lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Our passion is that all would know Christ, that, they would, that we would grow in our relationship with Christ and we would go tell others. So what does it mean to know God? And we're going to talk about that today a little bit, but it has everything to do with loving him and understanding his love for us. So how do you know this morning if you know him? How do you know? And are you growing in that knowing? We've talked about the last couple of weeks that the, that the, the arc of the biblical narrative from, from uh, Genesis to Revelation is fellowship. That God has created man and woman in his image, in his likeness. Every human being, from the beginning of time, from our first ancestors, Adam and Eve, until Jesus comes back, that every human being was created in God's likeness. And we were created in his likeness so that we could have a relationship with him. I hope that never gets old, because when you read God's word, have that arc of the narrative in mind. It's a melodic theme that runs through the entire book of the Bible, is that God created you for relationship. And that because of our sin, we are out of relationship with him. We were out of relationship with him. Last Sunday, we looked at uh, a couple of things in uh, chapter 1, verses 6 through 10, I think. And one is we looked at the nature of God. The nature of God. That God is holy. And that's probably his, his primary attribute that he's holy. It said that, um, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. At the same time, we saw man's nature is what? It's sinful. That um, Romans uh, 3 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So understanding our relationship with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, always should, it should start with understanding God's nature, that He is holy, and He can have nothing to do with sinful humanity, and that humanity is sinful. We have a sin nature, and we continue to sin. And these two realities have led to enmity with a, a holy God, and with you and I, the pinnacle of His creation. But God wasn't done. We know that. We know the end of the story that God's plan from eternity past was to have a creator's for a relationship and he would do whatever it took to have a relationship with us. He loves us that much. John reminded us last week that even though all have sinned and all will sin, the blood of Jesus, his death, cleanses us from all the effects of sin. 
It's through faith in Jesus' death on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins that we have a relationship with him. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Amen. And then with this new direction... When we're now walking in the light, we continue to sin. Is anybody else in that boat besides Jake and me? That even walking in the light, having desires to honor and glorify him, we stumble. We stumble in the light. And last week we saw that that God's given us some resources that when we stumble in the light, one is to confess our sins, to agree with God that we sinned. And it says that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And what that means is that when we agree with God that we've sinned, we're also to be reminded that he has already forgiven us of that sin. So today, John gives us another clue as to why he wrote this beautiful letter called 1 John. And he says in verse 1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. They go, well, Pastor Dan, why is John writing this? I thought that, that, um, that me sinning or not sinning has nothing to do with my salvation. I thought I was saved by grace. You are, and we'll get to that. John is writing to the church in the first century, a church that he loves, a church that he wants the best for. He's writing to those whom he affectionately refers to as little children. And his purpose in writing this letter is to encourage those who profess to know Jesus Christ to walk in the blessed assurance of all that it means to know him. He wants us to experience um, complete and fullness of joy. He wants us to have the type of assurance that just bleeds joy. But what he's going to tell us today that if we're not walking according to his commands, if we're not walking in the light, if we don't have a desire to live in obedience to him, we're not going to experience that joy actually. He wants us to know that we know him. He wants us to enjoy fellowship today with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, even in the midst of hardship and trials. This doctrine of assurance, this assurance that you know him and the assurance that he will keep you, it'll get you through any trial and hardship. We don't talk about the assurance of the believer enough. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So he says here right at the beginning, he says, don't sin. Mortify it. And what is sin? It's missing the mark. That God has has given us a plan on how to live and we're to live in obedience to him, to his word, to his commandments. And John says here, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, that you may not miss the mark, that you will walk according to the way that Jesus walked. Another way to describe sin is it's following our own heart. It's following our own mind. It's agreeing with Frank Sinatra and saying, I'm going to do it my way. And the, some of the most amazing words of Scripture. In the second half of verse 1. But if 
anyone sins. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. What are you hearing here? What is this telling you? This is the most, one of the most immensely helpful gospel verses in all of the Bible. This is our hope. This is why we can have joy in the midst of sin and trials and brokenness. But if anyone does sin, you have an advocate who is with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteousness, the righteous. An advocate is one who, who represents another, who stands in front of a judge making a plea for the cause of another. It's someone who wants the best for someone else who can't advocate for themselves. If you've known anybody in the justice system, as good as it might be in this country, if they don't have a good advocate, they're toast. They'll never get out of the system. Another, the Greek word for, for advocate is parakletos. Parakletos, which means helper. It's used four other times in the New Testament. All, of the, all the other four times are in God's gospel, or excuse me, John's gospel, referring to the Holy Spirit. So now, though, he's not referring to the Holy Spirit. He's, re, he's, re, he's not talking about the Spirit in us. He's talking about Jesus, the advocate, who is with the Father. I don't know how many times I've read this verse, and I've never fully understood that. That we have a helper that is in us so that we, not, we don't sin, and we have an advocate before the Father when we do sin. Perhaps a modern concept of the term um, advocate would be to would be one of a defense attorney. Um, it's a it's a scene of a courtroom where the father is a judge. You and I are the guilty defendants. Jesus is a defense attorney, and Satan is a prosecuting attorney. The reason that Jesus is able to stand with the Father and advocate on yours and my behalf is because He is righteous. There is no sin in him. That he is the spotless lamb, the perfect lamb. Nobody can approach the father that has any impurity of sin in them at all. There was no sin in Jesus. He lived the perfect life. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous. And before we get any further in this courtroom picture, I want to say this. This is not a picture of Jesus um, on his knees um, begging an unwilling father to uh, forgive us. In fact, it was the father who sent Jesus, if you remember. They're working together for our salvation. It's the father who put him, put him forward. In this scenario, the advocate has actually been appointed by the judge. They're working together. Jesus is with the Father. And what you might ask, well, what is Jesus even advocating for? And I'm not 100% sure, other than I know this, is that it's a, it's a picture of, of Jesus before the Father with holes in his both hands, in his feet, uh, pierced in the side of a constant reminder that you have been saved that you've been set free from the power and the penalty and the guilt of sin. But make no mistake here. In this courtroom scenario, Satan is correct. You and I and every human being 
from the beginning of time has sinned. And Satan keeps bringing those sins up, and the sins that he's bringing up are correct. He's correct that we sinned. But where he's lying is our guilt. Faith in Jesus, death on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins has made us innocent of all past, present, and future sins. Jesus, the innocent, the righteous one, became sin so that you and I, the guilty ones, would be forever declared innocent. And the fancy theological word is in the next verse. Propitiation. Can any of you kids say propitiation? That's it. You kind of spit when you say it. Propitiation. Pro, P-R-O. Propitiation is, pro means for. That God is for us. He put forth Jesus as a propitiation for our sins. Propitiation. He is for us. It means, the word means appeasement or satisfaction. You see, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross satisfied the demands of God's holiness for the punishment of sin. You see, every, and this is a hard message for little kids, but it's it's the only message that any of us should hear. That every human being, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't mean that, that God doesn't love you and doesn't want a relationship with you. But what it means is, is that because all have sinned, that we all deserve God's wrath. And what propitiation means is that, that Jesus, by his death on the cross, satisfied or appeased God's wrath. That God the Father poured out all of his wrath that was reserved for us on Jesus. Jesus drank the cup of wrath so that we could drink only the cup of blessing. That there is no wrath left for you and I if you put your faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. You see, this is how God can be said to be both just. He is a just judge. He must punish those who have sinned. But he's also the justifier. He's the one who puts down the gavel and says, innocent. Romans 3, 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, declared innocent by his grace as a gift. Nothing that you did. There's nothing that you could do in your life that is good enough. Adults, kids, nothing. And are justified by his his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Yes, Satan. This verse doesn't talk about Satan, but he's in the courtroom. And he is an evil prosecuting attorney. He is pointing out all of the sin that you and I have ever committed. I just picture him screaming at the judge, whispering at you and I, the defendant. And I picture the judge sitting there with a smile on his face, gazing at you and I, the defendant, going, yep, Satan's right. Yep, you did everything that he said. But rest 
in the beautiful doctrine of saved by God's grace. The payment for our crimes has already been paid for by the defense attorney, the advocate. And the judge is continually laying down the gavel and proclaiming your innocence. You're innocent. You're innocent. Get up, you're innocent. Let's do it again. And this picture goes further that I'd love to talk about for a few hours, but the picture goes further that when Jesus comes back to judge the living and the dead, you and I are going to be at the table of the feast with the judge and the advocate. And Satan is going to be put away forever where there's no more lies. There's no more suffering, no more death. There's no more sin. And it goes on to say here, that he is not only the propitiation for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. What does that mean? Universalism? Does that mean that anybody that is a good and moral person, anybody of any faith that believes in anything, uh, gets to benefit from uh, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross? What he's not referring to here is all who believe in some form of God will go to heaven. It means that Jesus' work on the cross is sufficient for the sins of the whole world. He didn't die for all, but his sacrifice was sufficient for all who would trust in him and his shed blood for the forgiveness of sins. And the Bible always divides the world up into two groups of people, Christians and non-Christians. Sheeps and goats, saved and lost. But this salvation, this propitiation is available. I want to say it loud and clear. It's available to anyone who would put their faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. But there are many in the world who are um, still trying to advocate or defend themselves. So that I'm better than the other guy. I'm not such a bad guy. And in the end, those who have not been covered by the blood of Jesus will be declared guilty in the end. This salvation is available to anyone who would trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for the forgiveness of their sins. Now in verse 3, we're introduced to one of John's favorite words. It's in our passion statement. Our passion is that all would know him and grow in their knowing and go tell others. What does it mean to um, know him? Verse 3, and by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. You see, to know him is from the Greek word gnosko, which means intimacy. It's a, it's a center, it's, uh, or relationship or fellowship. It's not just knowing about him, but it means that our lives are forever changed and intimately tied to his. He is in us and we are in him. Knowing him is not merely knowing the facts about him. Don't get me wrong, uh, studying the Bible and understanding facts is okay. 
It's good to know about God, but it's better to know God. And if you're in any type of Bible study right now, and, um, and you are um, uh, learning some really fun facts about God and people and history, and it's not going from your head to your heart, and you're not looking more like Jesus, um, um, put your Bible down and pray that God would give you um, eyes to see and ears to hear that you'd be transformed by the living word of God and pick it back up. So the goal is not to believe certain things about him, but to know him. Jesus prayed to the Father in the great high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 3, and this is eternal life that they know you the only true God. Not just know about you, but they know you. They become, they are in you and you are in them, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And I can only know him. I'm going to skip over that part just for time. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24 says this. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And J.I. Packer, in his amazing book, Knowing God, said this, there's no peace like the peace of those whose minds are possessed with full assurance that they have known God and God has known them. And that this relationship guarantees God's favor to them in life through death and on forever. So how do we know if we truly come to know, know God? How do you know if you're growing and you're knowing? Let me, let me give you some, um, let me tell you what it isn't. Not to be too cynical. You don't know if you have a relationship with God just because you're American or just because you vote a certain way. You don't know that you have a relationship with God because you grew up in the church. Kiddos, you are so fortunate to grow up in the homes that you're growing up in. But I want to call you to faith, that your parents' faith isn't your faith. I want to call you to that, that you would really come to know the risen Christ. So how do you know if we've truly come to know him and are connected to the eternal source? It's not just a feeling. It's not because you pray. It's not because you go to church or part of a, a community group. What's the saying that you know, you're no more a Christian because you go to church than you are a policeman because you go to a donut house? Something like that. Sorry, I know we got a couple policemen in here. And, it, and if you haven't gotten to Mr. Yo's, you should go there. It's not because of the thrills and visions and feelings that you get. You don't have assurance because you have a blessed life, even though you do have a blessed life. These things aren't bad. Most of these things are good. But none of those are to give us assurance. He tells us where assurance comes from. In verses 3 and 4, he says it's when we keep his commands. In verse 5, he says there's another way that we keep his word. In verse 6, he says there's another way that we walk in the same way that he walked. Let's look at 4 and 5. 
First, those who know God will be characterized by obedience, not obedience to God's commands. And I want to say that very carefully, that those who know God are characterized by obeying his commands and keeping his word. Remember, it's about direction, not what? Perfection. We're going to be perfect one day, and we should um, strive towards perfection, but we're not going to arrive. Whoever says, I know him, verse 4, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Kids, we don't use that word at home, but it's okay for the Bible to use it. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. If you say that you know him and do not strive to keep his commandments, you're not characterized as one who keeps his commandments, um, what, what John would say is that you're a false believer and the truth isn't in you. Those are some pretty pointed words. And please don't dismiss that truth too quickly. At the same time, however, we need to keep the reality of verses 1 and 2 in mind, unless the enemy makes uh, false accusations. We know that the failure to keep his commandments doesn't automatically mean that you're a false believer. John reminded us that if we do sin, what? Jesus Christ the righteous is, our, is, is the propitiation for our sin. He is advocating before the Father on your behalf. So once again, this verse is referring to an attitude and a direction of walking in the light. If there's no desire to live in subjection to God's commands and his word, um, you should examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Say it straight up. It doesn't mean that when you sin that you're not in the faith, but you have no desire to live in obedience to God's commands and to please Him, to love Him in the way that He laid out that He wants to be loved, and that's by following Him. Um, you should examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Verse 5. Whoever keeps His word, in Him truly the love of God is perfected. This is not talking about God's perfect love for us. The previous verses talked about God's perfect love for us. That he put forth Jesus as a propitiation for our sins. That, that Jesus is with the Father advocating for us. What this is referring to is our perfect love for the Father. This describes our end of fellowship. That the way that we honor him and glorify him and please him, the way that we love him is by keeping his word, by keeping his commandments. Loving him in the most simple form is keeping his word and living in obedience to his commands. Now, this isn't a focus on a list. It's not about, at the end, it's not about keeping his commandments or keeping his word. It's about loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you've got to ask yourself, what does that even mean? And I would submit to you, it's the heart of it is right here in these verses. Paul talks about it in Romans 12, 1 as well. He says that, he says, uh, we're to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to him. It's not a gospel of works. John is talking about assurance. He wants you to have maximum joy so that you can sprint and lean into the finish line without any questions of whether God has you and you have him. It's about joy. 
Whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. And get this, love always manifests itself by doing what the object of the love desires. Can anybody shoot any holes in that? I'm going home this afternoon and I'm burying this stinking sprinkler thing. Love always manifests itself by doing what the object of the love desires. John says in 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Mm. God is so good. So how do you know if you know him? How do you know if you're growing in your knowing? First is you keep his commandments. The Westminster Catechism. The first question. Anybody know the first question in the Westminster Catechism? What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The reformers had it right. If they mixed up those words at all, it would have been wrong. If it said the chief end of man is to enjoy God and to glorify him forever, that's backwards. Because where we find um, ultimate lasting joy is in glorifying God. And the way that we glorify God is we love God. And the way that we love God is we live in submission by the power of the Holy Spirit to his good commands and his good words. Not to get anything, but because we already possess everything in Jesus Christ. And secondly, the second way that we know if we know him and if we're growing in our knowing is that we walk in the same way that he walked. Verse 6. Whoever says that he abides in him ought to walk in the same way which he walked. Pastor Jake did a great job on defining abide, and we're going to have um, an opportunity to unpack that further in, in future sermons. John uses this word a lot in 1 John. But basically, abiding in him is synonymous with fellowship. It's synonymous with relationship. It's synonymous with, with, with knowing him or being in him. When we abide in him, we start to take on Jesus' character. We start looking more like Jesus and patterning our own life after him. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 11, take my yoke upon you. Does anybody know what a yoke is? Any kids know what a yoke is? Did you eat any this morning? What is it? Tell me. Boom. Boom. That's right. Yoke's on you. That's, uh, that is what a yoke is. Let me tell you what else a yoke is. So have you ever seen animals that got these big things around their neck? And, it's, it's to, it's to, uh, and then they connect another animal to them so that there's two animals going in the same direction, usually around, around a circle. Um, a yoke is put on so that we would, we would pattern ourselves or, or match the life of another. So does that make sense? So, do you got a dog at home? So you should try that with your dog. You got two dogs? Yoke them together. No, don't do that. It's an experiment. Post it on Facebook. Let me know how it goes. It's, yeah. So Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Um, this is, uh, take my pattern of life upon you. Follow my ways. Walk as I walk. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Jesus' great concern was to do the will of God when he was on this earth. 
He wanted to please his father, not please man. And growing in our knowing is walking with Jesus' yoke, not pulling against it. And we're going to finish up right here. Kids, you've done great, by the way. Parents, you've done better. Nice job. Jesus Christ is the righteous one who lived the perfect life that you and I couldn't live. He who knew no sin became our sin that we might become the righteousness of Christ. He was put forth as a propitiation for our sin. You see, God is a holy God, and he can have nothing to do with sinful humanity. But Jesus, the the spotless lamb, willingly um, went to the cross. He took all of our sin. He took all of God's wrath that was reserved for us, and he drank it. And he drank it empty. So there wasn't a drop of God's wrath left for you and I. And what he left for us was the cup of God's blessing. And we can drink deep of that eternal cup of God's blessing. And then Jesus is with the Father, advocating continually for our innocence so that we will stay in fellowship with the Father in these days and throughout all eternity. Let me ask you, are you growing in your knowing? Are you growing in your understanding of God's love for you? And what is your response to that? And before I pray and and bring Pastor Chris back up to lead us in song, um, propitiation is not just for us. Salvation isn't just for us. It's for the entire world, for all that would put their faith and trust in Jesus. Jesus prayed this in John 17, as you have sent me into the world, Father, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for um, your word. I thank you, God, for your spirit that illuminates your word and helps us give understanding. God, I thank you that as long as there is breath um, on this side of eternity, God, you are, um, nobody is uh, beyond your saving right arm. And God, I pray that you would uh, draw those um, um, uh, that we know and love in this body, God, to yourself that they would find that sweet fellowship, that sweet joy of fellowship that they were created for. And God, I pray for every one of us here that have put our faith and trust in Jesus already for the forgiveness of our sins. God, that we have uh, trusted in the propitiation for our sins. God, I pray that we would stand in that truth daily, that we would be reminded that it is finished and that, Lord Jesus, you are before the Father, the Judge, continually to advocate for our innocence. And I pray, God, that, the, uh, that the, the, the overflow would be abounding fullness of joy. And that the outcome would be that we would go and tell others about the good news of Jesus Christ. We love you. We thank you that you loved us first. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand close our service together.